And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. As part of my daily grind, I do a lot of research. As you can imagine, there's a lot to digest. Cannabis is an ever-changing movement. Whatever was true yesterday most likely won't be true tomorrow. There seems to be one constant, though, having to do with the physics of motion. Okay, let me explain. In the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of progress in the cannabis movement. And like a locomotive at a dead stop, it took a while to get it rolling. The train has left the station and it's rapidly gaining steam. So if you've ever studied physics, you're probably well aware of Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposing reaction. It seems that every milestone reached by the pro-cannabis lobby, an anti-marijuana lobby is driving its own bandwagon with equal force in the opposite direction. Opponents continue to proliferate the notion that legalization will lead our society into the tunnel of doom. Despite mounting evidence that benefits of regulation far outweigh prohibition. By now, it's obvious that reefer madness was engineered as a ploy to enrich a handful of robber barons. It's also obvious the handful of powerful lobbies have taken extraordinary measures to ensure that federal laws just don't change. Like true pioneers, early advocates have managed to forge ahead without getting derailed by the opposition. And with millions of believers now on board, the marijuana movement is unstoppable. We're beginning to see light at the end of the Prohibition Tunnel, but how do we really know it's not the oncoming train? That's going to be the first question for my guests today. But before I introduce them, Nate Nichols has our Marijuana Minute. What's making news today, Nate? Thank you, Snowden. Arizona's recreational ballot initiative paved its way onto the November ballot. It settled two pieces of pending litigation that could have stopped it from making it there. The first was a lawsuit waged by anti-pot prohibitionists uh, Maricopa County Attorney Bill Montgomery and Yavapai County Attorney Sheila Polk. They alleged that the 100-word summary provided to voters was both misleading and fraudulent. They also argued in court that the complexity of the bill's text would prohibit Arizonans from making an informed decision. The Arizona Supreme Court disagreed with them and thinks that Arizonans will be able to decide in November. The campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol filed a suit of its own, uh, an official complaint against Secretary of State Michelle Reagan and Attorney General Mark Bronovich. They claim that in information distributed to voters, they misidentified the age for marijuana use as over 21, when in fact it is those 21 and over. They also list the offenses under the new law as generally petty offenses for marijuana crimes, when in fact there are still several felony crimes that remain. In addition, It listed the taxation that will be created, a 15% tax on all marijuana sales, but failed to list what the revenue would be used for, funding education. When they filed the suit, the campaign noted that in 11 of the last 13 ballot initiatives since 1998, when the new tax was mentioned, the use of the revenues was mentioned as well. The Arizona Department of Health Services is preparing to issue new licenses. Ray Stern of the Phoenix New Times reports that 747 applications were submitted. 
Each application costs $5,000, which means DHS stands to make $3.7 million in fees alone. The states, this money will be added to the, the fund for the administration of the medical marijuana program, which had over $12 million in it before the latest influx. Governor Ducey came out recently with public statements against the recreational ballot initiative. He says that if we want to expand the universe of people that are addicted and abusing drugs, we'll have that chance in November. Ducey went on to say that, as governor, he has to worry about the 19,000 children in Arizona's foster care system, 85% of which have parents that are addicted to or abuse drugs in some way. He went on to say, I don't think that any state has become stronger by being stoned. I would check your facts when you say something is non-addictive, that something's safer than alcohol, and look at the unintended consequences that have happened in states like Washington and Colorado, the way this has infiltrated high schools with brownies, cookies, and Pez dispensers and all-day suckers. It'll be interesting to see what Arizonans will decide and if they give credence to Governor Ducey's statements this November. You know, that really drives home the reason that we're here today, because I think that um, trying to convince lawmakers and policymakers about the merits of legalization or the merits of even, you know, medical marijuana is an uphill battle, I think, for for so many. Definitely. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think that they're just also proliferating that uh, mis- misconception and misperception. It takes about, a lot of voices to change the conversation. It sure does. But anyway, this is why we're here. So let's get to it. I'm really excited to introduce our guests. First, let me introduce Dimitri Downing. He's a philanthropist, lobbyist, consultant, and a former prosecutor who's also campaigning for marijuana reform. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and um, also... Joining us here in the studio is John Hartzell. He's the CEO of Weedia Inc., which is the uh, uh, corporate umbrella that has Weedia Buzz, one of the premier sources of news about the marijuana industry. And thank you so much, John, for being here today. I'm glad you could be here as well. Well, thanks so much for having me. So let's let's go back and talk a little bit about this um, oncoming train issue, because I... I I've seen so much resistance to this as the, as the movement gets rolling, and it's, it, there's so much happening every single day, the news changes, and yet you've got these forces who are also policymakers or lobbyists and um, just generally people in the public eye saying, no, this is horrible for our children. Dimitri, what do you tell them? Because you're a lobbyist. Well, I'm, I'm not going to tell them it's something positive for their children. You always want to start the conversation by telling the truth. What's interesting, what's happening now in the marijuana policy, you know, it's actually interesting you started the conversation by talking about the physics and motion and got me thinking about how Albert Einstein always used to say that politics is more difficult than physics. Right. Which is a very interesting thing, that you're talking about the physics and motion. But, so I've been able to watch... In specifically in Arizona, with the United States of America, a little bit in Mexico, the politics of marijuana evolved in the 80s, the 90s, and 2000s. Um, I started off in high school in the 80s here in Arizona, went to law school in the 90s, and became a prosecutor in 2000 to 2010. You know, as a prosecutor, we were never encouraged to discuss, debate, analyze the politics of the situation. And it's not really necessarily a good thing to have your law enforcement deciding which law should be regulated. That is something that it falls on the legislative department. It's on their department uh, to analyze and decide the policy for the community that they're regulating or governing. 
What happened was in between 2000 and 2010, there was this giant shift nationwide, beginning in Colorado, obviously, to the concept of switching away from a prohibition model to solving a problem to a tax and regulate model. I call it the Aikido method of solving a problem to tax and regulate and educate people to not use the substance. So it's not like there's this great movement in America to suddenly consume and use more marijuana medicinally or adult use-wise. What's happening is the mainstream voters, the independent voters right in kind of the middle of the, of the, of the section between the 40 and 60 percentiles, are now looking at the marijuana policy and regulation in a different way. They're not waking up one morning, such as yourself or myself, and saying, hey, you know what? Maybe marijuana is not such a bad thing. Maybe I'm going to start smoking marijuana. It's going to make some sort of utopian reality. They're thinking to themselves, you know, you have this 30, 40 percentile over here that, you know, wants to consume adult use, whatever they want to do, medicinally, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't we look at it in a different manner? Why don't we tax it, research it, understand it, regulate it, continue to discourage its use, like we discourage the use of tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, alcohol, too much love. I like to, I'm just kidding. No, you can never have enough love, right? Never can have enough I love. John, I think John Lennon <laughs> said that. So we, we'll leave that out of the government's regulation. Right. Yeah. Well, the, they might try to regulate They're that They're going to try. They will. Yeah. <laughs> so... Anyway, so you have this, this 46% of that's now actually looking at and analyzing and thinking to themselves, hmm, why don't we tax and regulate like tobacco? We use the tobacco money to teach kids not to smoke tobacco. It's a good idea. It's a right. whole different approach, different model that's occurred. And I, I've been, I prosecuted, I put people in jail for consumption of marijuana. I put people in jail for transportation of marijuana. You know, I, I understand the drug trade very thoroughly as I was a prosecutor on the southern Arizona border dealing directly with, you know, cartels that would bring it to the border, uh, entrepreneurs who would realize that for $5,000, $15,000 a load, they could pick it up to board, from the border and take it to Casa Grande, Tucson, or Phoenix, and then sell it to other little gangbangers that would then distribute throughout the Phoenix area. Right. I know the drug trade very well, but what's happened is a shift in the mentality of how we are dealing with the problem, not a shift in the mentality as to whether it's a problem. I see. And, and that completely makes sense. I mean, and really what you're doing then is you're taking the money that's going to be spent anyway, whether it's legal or not, and putting that to good use as opposed to giving it to the person who's delivering it to the border to go and spend as they will. It, it's just been ridiculous. I mean, people yeah. have no idea how much money is generated illegally in the black market, in the gray mm -hmm. market in California, Colorado. Arizona, for decades, Arizona and San Diego, uh, San Antonio, we have been these corridors of drug shipments to the East Coast in massive amounts, untaxed, unregulated, and all the money will get collected. It will then get shipped down to Mexico or other countries. And to Dimitri's point on that exactly, when we are creating legal opportunities for entrepreneurs to start small businesses in Arizona and likewise in many other states that are following the same path of, uh, of regulating and taxing marijuana, we're taking money directly out of the hands of cartels and putting them into the hands of small businesses and entrepreneurs throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. This is a way to increase revenues and create opportunities, jobs, and well-paying jobs to many Americans that are currently out of work. So this is a great opportunity to expand a new area, a new vertical for entrepreneurs to take 
uh, initiative to building a business that is viable and pr- productive to our economy. Right. I mean, talk about buying American. I mean, talk about putting America first. Right. Right now, for example, it's a, it's a fascinating dynamic. So I, I was in prosecution until 2010. Then when government relations for two years, been in the marijuana industry as a lobbyist, activist, and organizer of the www.mit-az.org, if I can put a little plug, Arizona Media-AZ. Yeah. It's our trade association. Uh 2012-2016. Right now in Arizona, you have 2,500-plus individuals who are paying taxes, employees, paying payroll taxes, supporting local comedy, regulated, checked, background checks, working in the industry. In 2005, you had a lot of gangbangers who were operating illegally, solving their problems on the streets, making money not paying taxes, and sending the appropriate share through channels back down to Mexico. Which is better for the American economy? No one is saying, no one is waking up in the morning and saying, you know what? Everybody should smoke marijuana. It's right. a good idea. Who says that about alcohol? Who says that about tobacco? Who says right. that about Coke? You know, yeah. Coca-Cola. No, you should drink more Coca-Cola. Right. You know, nobody says that. What they're saying is there's a different way to look at the situation. Whatever you perceive. And personally, I would never encourage my children to smoke tobacco drink too much Coca-Cola, consume alcohol, consume marijuana. It's just unless they need it. Right. You know, and, and that's a whole other reality. That's a whole other too. discussion. It, it truly is a, a wonderful medicine. It truly is a wonderful drug, organic drug that can do amazing things. I was entirely wrong about my perception of marijuana. I thought it was a thing that was going to make people, you know, get, get fat, sit on couches, get lazy. You know, I really thought that. Yeah. And I didn't care to think about it otherwise. The last four years in this industry, I am absolutely certain that once it's taken off the Schedule 1, once it's researched, once it's understood, once it's developed, I'm absolutely certain, based on my empirical ability to understand things, that it is going to replace a number of... Dangerous uh, pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah, dangerous pharmaceutical drugs or other alternatives. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, there's something called bang chocolates. I don't want to give them a plug, but... It's well known in, in the medicinal marijuana industry in Arizona that bang is a good sleep aid. When I was in college, I used to sleep aid with NyQuil. Right. That was my sleep aid. Right. You know? And then one day, you know, mar- marijuana is an organic substance. Is, is NyQuil an organic substance? <laughs> Certainly not. You know? So yeah. these, these are truths that you need to analyze and research and understand. We are so still living in the world of... Marijuana is the devil's weed, you mm-hmm. know, this, this misconception, this notion. That was probably one of the world's most, I mean, aside from the propaganda that came out of Germany before World War II, reefer madness uh, with Hearst's massive campaign across the states was probably one of the most successful propaganda campaigns that's lasted forever. I mean, John, you're in the media business. It, it, we constantly look at reefer madness. Uh, when you go to school uh, for marketing and, and uh, public manipulation is what it comes down to. And ultimately, reefer madness may have been one of the most effective campaigns ever run in our history. Yeah. Uh, and uh, simply caused generation after generation of people to uh, have misconceptions about a plant that grows from the ground. We're talking about a freedom for a plant that grows from the ground naturally uh, that has been prohibited Uh, for over 80 years now in the United States. And it has caused not just uh, loss to our society from the standpoint of medicinal use, 
but has also caused a great loss, as we were talking earlier, Snowden, from an environmental standpoint. We could be using hemp oil to create plastic bottles that, once used, are biodegradable within 60 days of touching the soil. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could be eliminating the continent-sized plume of trash and plastic in the Pacific Ocean uh, through using a very much so much more renewable uh, resource than uh, than what we're currently using, and I think the uh, the fact that uh, hemp has been uh, overstepped uh, by the cannabis industry and and the cannabis industry having been created a, an evil empire in our uh, in our society has really cost us uh, far more from that standpoint than it has as as any kind of a drug for recreational or medicinal use. Right, and when you when you consider the environmental implications of growing BT cotton, for example, which require petrochemicals to create the herbicide, pesticide, and fungicide that they need to, those they require that to grow. When hemp can right. make canvas-like uh, textiles very much the same way. In fact, Levi's, the very first pair of Levi's was made out of hemp. Well, we were talking before the show that, that ultimately that every farmer in the United States, when it became the United States, was required to grow hemp at their mm-hmm. farm because of, if its, they had a farm. because of its versatility and the utility that it brings to uh, creation of fabric or oils or other uh, items that are commonly used in manufacturing today. And the simple fact that it looks exactly the same as cannabis uh, as, as the recreationally or medicinally used plant. Just a little taller. Uh, just a little taller, grown differently, certainly uh, much less expensive to grow. Uh, it, it, the fact that it looks the same causes the problem. And yeah. Go ahead, Dimitri. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not about freeing, I mean, saving the world's oceans or uh, environmental issues or climate right, change. Right. You know, I'm a realist. I'm a hard-headed realist. But I'm also an American. And America is about liberty, and America is about choice. Right. And America is about good knowledge, good decisions. And hemp, as you were talking about, it's one of the innocent victims of this drug war. Right. Hemp is just a, it's a functional plant with a lot of abilities to solve a lot of problems, as John was talking about. That can't get you high, and if you smoke it, you get a headache. Yeah. And, and I used, I'm that guy in college that would walk by the hemp activists and say, ah, oh, you crazy hippie, go home. You know, <laughs> that was me. Yeah. As, as were so many people. Yeah, but I was wrong. And when you reflect upon something, when you think about it and you see firsthand exactly what is going on and you learn about it, you make better decisions. And, of course, in regards to hemp and cannabis, the better decisions choose liberty, choose choice, choose education, mm-hmm. choose research, choose knowledge, all these things that we need to have in order to make good policy. There's nothing more American, I don't think, than uh, bringing back the American farmer. And a way that we can do that is by enabling those farmers to transition their farms to hemp farms Mm -hmm. where they can produce products and uh, natural resources that are important to our uh, sustainability as a country and our independence from the need uh, for oil and other products from other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. It'll, it'll make them, uh, it'll give them a second chance at becoming part of an enormous industry. I mean, even back in 1937, uh, um, Popular Mechanics called the hemp industry a billion-dollar industry. And if you think about that, 1937, they called it that. And right now, so many products are imported from countries where hemp farming is legal. Um, you know, and you can get those products at Trader Joe's or anywhere, any, any grocery store carries them, but our American farmers been shut out for so long. 
you know, it just crossed my mind. I, I just bought a bamboo um, cutting board last night. Maybe I'll buy a hemp cutting board next time. One of these days you might. <laughs> yeah. Hemp cutting board. There's, yeah. there's another business idea. But they're also, they're also making concrete blocks out of hemp. You know, they call it hempcrete, hempcrete right? Yeah. Yeah. So well, th- think about it again. It, that's the entrepreneurial spirit of our great country and the people who live in it uh, is that when you find a new way, I mean, think about the hemp industry, uh, kind of like the coffee industry in the late 80s when Starbucks became a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, just recently, cannabis uh, dispensaries just outnumbered the number of Starbucks that exist in Colorado. Uh, so I, I commonly liken the cannabis industry to the coffee industry of the 1980s and 1990s. That's where it's headed. And, and in the same vein, that hemp is kind of like the oil industry and will at some point grow to a substantial size. It will be critical to how we uh, function in our, in our country, mm-hmm. uh, both sides. You know, that gets me. Uh, a lot of people are out there, you know, say, let's look at Colorado. Let's look at Washington. And what's happening politically, and this is very important for your listeners nationwide, don't listen to the data. Don't, don't, don't listen to the activists that are trying to spin it from one side or the other. If you really want to take an opinion on something that's going on in Colorado, go see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Go see the changes. Talk to somebody who actually lives there. Don't talk to somebody who's trying to spin you one way or the other. And you're going to find that the sky hasn't fallen. Everything is, I mean, I'm very comfortable with the fact that if you observe with your own eyes, if you listen with your own ears, you will learn the truth. And the truth is, again, prohibition is a model that just doesn't work. It's a big waste of police time, prosecutor time, prison time, when there's plenty of domestic violence, there's plenty of rapes, plenty of murders, plenty of other things that we need to focus our time on as members of the law enforcement community. Prohibition doesn't work. Now, it's a tough sell to talk about prohibition ending with heroin and some of these other substances because they're very powerful substances. I'm not even entirely sold at this point, and I'm right in the middle of these discussions and these debates. But I'm certain that marijuana is a less dangerous substance than alcohol. Maybe we can't have a threshold for a substance that it becomes like at a certain point dangerous enough that we need to use prohibition. The development of nuclear weapons, dangerous thing. Right. We need prohibition on that. Maybe there is a threshold, and I don't know, but there's one thing I know in my experience reading over 5,000 police reports between 2000 and 2010. I've actually saved a number of them for when I have debates. I really don't even participate in debates, but when I talk to people, I can show them. Of those police reports, about 97% of the violent crimes involved alcohol. Mm -hmm. None of the violent crimes, except for those ones where people didn't have access to civil or criminal justice courts to deal with their contractual problems in a marijuana transaction, involved marijuana. Marijuana is a substance that calms people down. Alcohol is a substance that does all kinds of crazy things to people. But yet we deal with it in that model. Now, along those lines, if you believe in prohibition as a model for, for, for solving problems, well then, go campaign to bring prohibition back for alcohol because that will solve society's problems. Well, and it's, it's, it's poisonous, whereas marijuana itself, they're proving it daily that there's no danger caused by it yeah, to the, your personal health or, you know, the way that your, your psyche responds to it. And, you know, I don't get excited about many things, but medicinally, marijuana as a drug needs to happen it needs Mm -hmm. to be tested it needs to be available i had a friend about two years after starting into the medical marijuana community in arizona he drank a a, like a 1.51 bacardi with 
opioids for his back pains, and he died of, of an overdose. Ugh. Had he actually three weeks before that, he contacted me on Facebook and said, Dimitri, I hear you're involved in the medical marijuana community. How do I get my card? Three weeks before that. Uh, it's just, it's an amazing story. I never, I never share his name, but it's a fact. I wouldn't you know, convey it to others if it wasn't a fact. Maybe one day I'll get his mom to talk about it openly. But the fact of the matter is, had he switched over to medical marijuana, he might not be dead right now. Right. And this is happening across the country. Marijuana is a drug. Marijuana is medicine. Marijuana has many, many benefits. We should not get the two confused adult use and medicinal marijuana. We need to 100% protect people's basic human right to medicate how they want to. That is an absolute. No, yeah. no question about that. I, I have a good friend, Jose Martinez, and you can read more about his story at uh, WeediaBuzz.com. Jose is a veteran who stepped on a landmine in Iraq and uh, unfortunately lost both of his legs and one of his arms, his right arm, he's right-handed. Uh, and uh, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time with him. At one point in his life, uh, after he came back and recovered uh, as much as you can recover, he was taking over 3,000 milligrams of opioids each day, not just to manage his pain, but to manage his mental state. And through uh, intensive therapy, uh, he has eliminated all of those opioids, not just for pain management, but for his own mental health management, and is solely taking cannabis as a recovery item for that, uh, for, for those pains. So it, anybody who can look at a story like that or the stories of children with epilepsy or suffering from thousands of seizures uh, a week or a month uh, and are now mainstreaming into society as a result of their use of cannabis and still not think it should be available medicinally should take a real hard look at their own personal ideals and their own personal politics that are getting in the way of bringing relief to so many people who are in pain. Right. Or the people lobbying should look at their own pocketbooks and see, okay, you know, is, is this benefiting them in a financial way to keep it illegal? And, it, and is there a better way? I mean, right. it, there, there's, this is the dot-com boom uh, all over again, revisited from a, mm -hmm. from a financial opportunity standpoint. So uh, those folks that are out there uh, gaining financially from opposition to maybe they could change the, the spin of their wheels to gain from the opportunity that exists here, uh, one that's important and one that's really relevant to our time. Again, yeah, what is that martial art? Keto, yeah, it's, it's the Aikido approach thing. Take the energy of the thing that's bothering you and use it against itself. Right. You know, like we're doing with tobacco and the tobacco taxes. Teach the kids not to smoke tobacco. In, in Arizona, nobody smokes tobacco anymore. I mean, it's very rare you go to bars and stuff, like one person smokes a cigarette used to be everybody in the bar would smoke cigarettes. Why? Because people would be educating not to use, being educated not to use it. Use the marijuana taxes. To if you really hate marijuana, use the marijuana taxes to educate people not to use marijuana. And you know what's interesting? You're talking about the, the perspective and position and message of the prohibitionists has changed so strangely over the last, like, seven years. In 2009, it was like, you know, uh, we oppose medical marijuana. We oppose all uses of marijuana. There's no such thing as medical marijuana. And then in 2010, the marijuana, medical marijuana initiative passed here in Arizona. And then they were opposed to it, 2011, 2012, 2013. And now that there's an adult use initiative, the actual the chief, the chief opponent of, of, of the Prop 205 here in Arizona actually gets up at debates and says, we don't need adult use. Actually, she's a lady, so I can't make her voice. But we don't need adult use marijuana we have a functional medicinal marijuana system for everybody who needs it. Wait, did you just endorse 
the medical just, after marijuana. all that time. And it's system. the same people that have been fighting the medical system too. That you just is, that yeah. you've been fighting for the last six years. Is that did I hear that? And correctly? she's a prosecutor. Yeah. <laughs> just that, as an aside, that's the same kind of two faced politics that are just no good yeah. for anyone. And then and then they say, well, it's not just about keeping uh, adult use illegal. It's also about the economic model by which the adult use marijuana is provided. What? Are we talking about marijuana? Are we talking about economics here? You know, so they, it's, it's just this goal to keep this model intact. And, you know, I've worked in the law enforcement community. Never once in hundreds and hundreds of police officers, Department of Justice conferences, never once. And I, I work really closely with some chief prosecutors. Did anybody say, hey, you know, we need to keep marijuana illegal for this reason or that reason? Yeah. You know, so it's a very strange that there's such this opposition from a small group of sheriffs and prosecutors, not just in Arizona, but nationwide, who are trying to keep it illegal. I'm not sure what their agenda is. Lots of speculation. Like, Well, I, could it possibly have anything to do with campaign finance? <laughs> well, I, 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 and I protecting think, the, the donors? Who I knows? think at the end of the day, there, there are a lot of folks who have figured out where uh, the dollars and cents are to be made uh, in in all of politics, whether mm-hmm. it's campaigns, whether it is working at the legislature. Dimitri and I just spent time down at the legislature with policymakers and I brought up as a realization to the folks we were talking to, most of the people that come down here and lobby you are lobbying you to give you less money, to take more money away from you, to spend more money on projects that are important to them. We're bringing you something that's going to actually create revenue, bring revenue to the bottom line in the state of Arizona that, number one, first and foremost, is going to educate our children to finance schools. Now, in the state of Arizona, we were just told that we were a billion and a half dollars short in our expenditures over the last five years towards public schools. Why in the world are, are our state legislators, some of them, and our leadership at the uh, state level uh, looking at this as an evil, as something that won't be good towards the bottom line? End of the day, we've got to uh, take a hard look at where we're bringing our tax dollars from, where we're going to mitigate those losses, and how we're going to recover a billion and a half dollars in education resources for our K through eight schools. Both charter schools and public schools benefit from that. Right, and it's, when, oh, it's also a huge savings too. I mean, the at the speech that Governor Ducey was giving, he was speaking about uh, prescription drug abuse and the thousands of Arizonans that die every year because of that. And you think about the resources that could be transitioned to a really significant problem like that. And as uh, Dimitri pointed out, you know, taken away from, you know, pretty much non nonviolent offenses that are related to cannabis right now. And Nate, your, uh, your perspective may be the most important in the room, you know, from, from an age standpoint, you bring uh, the future into the conversation and uh, that is a really important perspective and certainly one that we should all be listening to more often. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, I agree. and end of the day, uh, these are the folks that are going to be taking over and, and running the world when we are living out our golden years. Uh, and uh, we're fortunate to have people like Nate that are uh, bringing up the rear and, and making sure that we have a good voice in the room when it comes to these issues. Thank you. It's about getting uh, people my age to vote, too. So that's yeah, a big getting part them, of it, though. definitely getting them to the polls. But, uh, Dimitri, let me ask you this. When you are talking to people in the state legislature and um, others who, who are influence makers, if you will, um, are you also telling them that the legalization measure 
will solve some of the problems that aren't addressed, like for instance, uh, in the medical law, there's, there's no provision calling for testing and purity of substances that are being sold to patients, or the fact that uh, so many of the childhood illnesses are, are really not covered that could actually benefit from medicinal use of marijuana. Is that something that comes into the conversation? Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of politicians nationwide, the federal level and the state level. I could tell you how that works at, the, at that dynamic. In, in, in Arizona, we have a very unique situation. The politicians in the state of Arizona, they don't want to talk about marijuana. It's a lot easier not to talk about marijuana. I wish they would take marijuana, or the bull by the horns, and actually control the situation and improve it and make it better for the, for the citizens. But the, the little nuance in Arizona is they don't, they don't want to talk about it. Now, in other jurisdictions like Oregon and Washington, Hawaii and Pennsylvania and Colorado, they're actively doing things to guide this momentum that's occurring with the citizenry within their states. Right. Um, so in, in Arizona, it's a little different. But, but yeah, I mean, th these things like, for example, in the Prop 205, the, the, the initiative that was written by the citizens of Arizona <clears throat> that's being voted on November 8th, testing is taken into account. Mm -hmm. uh, the, we know that if it becomes available adult, adult use, the price will plummet, which will mean that it will be medicinally more available for patients. People be able to research it, study it, experiment with it in their own right. home. You know, there's so many things out there that this plant can do medicinally, and as it's studied more and more, by, and it's accessible more and more, better things are going to happen. Politicians are very hesitant to talk about it, and I always think why. I always ask myself why, because I ran for office. My dad was in the State House of Arizona. I'm a pretty conservative dude, and I, kind of, I try to analyze why. And I think what it happens is that it's an easy, common enemy. We're always trying to find ways to divide ourselves. We're always trying to find ways to say, this is, we're different from them, you know, separate ourselves somehow to create this group mentality, you know, this kind of thing, mm -hmm. a little social dynamic thing. Yeah. And I think marijuana is an easy target. It's an easy target because it's an easy enemy. The Chinese are over there, the Mexicans are over there, the, you know, the fascists are gone. I don't know. There's all kinds of common enemies. Well, and, and it kind of goes back to reefer madness, too. I mean, at yeah. this point, we've, we're, what, three generations later after that propaganda? Yeah. So at this point, it's almost like ancestral memory. You know, it's ingrained in our collective psyche so much. And the stigma attached to it, especially people who are in the public eye, I mean, do you think that has, you know, as much to do with it? Well, a lot of Republicans, you know, in the state of Arizona will tell me, you know, I got no problem with marijuana. It just doesn't play well in my primaries. You know, I mean, that's, that's the reality, you know. I right. mean, people recognize that there's a business of marijuana in the United States, whether it's illegal or, or legal, mm -hmm. and it's better to have it in the traditional legal marketplace where we can tax it, regulate it, test it, and do everything we need to to make sure it's accountable, transparent, and if there's any contractual disputes, they don't end up, and someone doesn't end up rolled up in a carp in the back of a trunk in a desert with a bullet through their head, which is the traditional way of solving problems in the Arizona desert with uh, marijuana transactions pre-Arizona Medical Marijuana Act 2010. Right. The violence has decreased tremendously. The transportation of marijuana from Mexico to the United States which also means the transportation of dollars back to Mexico has decreased tremendously. Right. So, I mean, this is if it goes adult use, like in Colorado, California is probably going adult use. It's probably polling really high. All it just means is that that same business that has been, been occurring for the last 30, 40 years is just shifting back to our country. 
it just makes a whole lot more sense to keep it here. Right. Yeah, the, the notion that uh, all of a sudden somebody's going to decide that marijuana is for them uh, because it's now in a store uh, is a very small percentage of the population. In fact, in Colorado, the number of uh, high school kids who are using marijuana has decreased since its, its legalization for adult use. Uh, in Arizona, like we've talked about before in the show, uh, the, the fact is that those dollars are already in our economy. They might mm-hmm. as well be in our economy in a legal way that is taxed and useful uh, to our schools, our roads, law enforcement, and other areas that can be uh, uh, benefited by uh, those tax dollars coming into our economy. And, and yeah, it's about choices. It really is about choices. I was just thinking right. about that. You have no idea how much marijuana I've seen in the last four years. I used to see marijuana rolled up in, in uh, duct tape, and they use this brown tape to wrap marijuana in bales. I used to see that all, all the time across the border in all kinds of samples, all kinds of different ways. I wasn't actively involved with people who consume and use marijuana. In the last four years being involved in this industry, I have been offered more marijuana than you can possibly imagine. I can get high ten times a day. Right. I don't want to get high. I also don't want to drink. Right. I also don't want to smoke cigarettes. I want to make good choices. And that that's what it's about. The real enemy, what the real enemy is ignorance. The real enemy is stupidity. Yeah, well or or just being uninformed too because I mean there are a lot of people that that really take seriously that that um stigma and and the fact that they've been taught their entire lives about how bad marijuana is. Right. And the the story is simple, that um, we spend more money on incarceration than any other country in the world per capita. And this is one of the main reasons why cannabis and uh, for it to be such a fruitful opportunity for entrepreneurs, uh, for our governments, our local, state and federal uh, jurisdictions to uh, gain revenue and to eliminate major costs uh, to our society, like I talk about incarceration, uh, is is an unbelievable opportunity that we have at this time in our history. Yeah. Uh, and one that will hopefully uh, be recognized in the aging population as well. I'm a little bit different of, a, of an activist. I'm, um, I cannot say anything that that is not true. Right. So... You know, for me, I've always perceived marijuana, and to me, marijuana is something just like alcohol or tobacco that shouldn't be used. So the, the difference with a modern marijuana movement and the modern activists and all these businessmen and these mainstream individuals that's got involved isn't a shift uh, against the concept that marijuana should be you know, encouraged, uh, that people should not be encouraged to use it. Nobody's saying that the world should start smoking marijuana. It's just a simple shift in how we manage the problem, how we manage, if you believe it's a problem, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of your listeners out there saying, no, marijuana sucks. I hate marijuana. I hate marijuana smokers. I hate marijuana users. Right. The prohibition is not the answer to deal with that. The answer to deal with that is tax, regulate, and educate, just like we do with alcohol or tobacco. Right. It's sort of the difference between seeing it as a criminal problem versus a public health problem, too, I think. Yeah, and, and, and this is the big shift that's happening right now also when people are talking, why is everybody talking about marijuana all of a sudden? Why all these movements? Why all these initiatives? Why all these states in the last five, ten years? It's because from 1970 to 2005 or something, you had people out there saying, no, you know, if you just smoke marijuana with me because if you smoke marijuana with me, you're, you're, your life is going to be better. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to do my Bill Clinton voice. Yeah. <laughs> he was president of the United States. 
But he didn't right. inhale. <laughs> right. I mean, come well, on. You he, know, Jim, Jimmy Carter had Willie Nelson over. The story goes that he and uh, Willie smoked a little bit of weed on the on the rooftop of the White House. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's been in the White House. And what's crazy is, is <laughs> you know, ADD. ADD is something that people medicate for all the time. I'm absolutely certain, as this drug is researched and understood, that there's something inside marijuana that will cure ADD. Yeah. Now, what happens to somebody like me, if you gave me an ADD medicine, it would mess me up. You know, right. So I'm not going to go smoke marijuana, but there are some people who need a medicine to get them back to a functional level no, where they can. There are people gravitating toward it. They don't know why. Yeah. You yeah. know, and there you go. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, obviously there is a lot of light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the conversation about marijuana and people, you know, with the growing acceptance, at least the resolve to understand that this is a movement that's not going to stop. But I think the oncoming train that that still has potential to get it off its rails is the lobby on the other side. There's so many industries that are very, very powerful out there who stand to lose a lot if marijuana is rescheduled on a federal level or if it becomes legalized you know, across the nation. Pharmaceuticals, we've got um, the alcohol lobby and the private prison lobby because certainly... I mean, as a prosecutor, do you do you kind of see well, that they're you know, benefiting from all a, that incarceration? A very prominent state senator here in Arizona asked, I was speaking to him once about this issue and about a year ago, and he said to me, Dimitri, where's, where's the alcohol industry on this? Where's the pharmaceutical industry on this? And I said, I think you'll know before I do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because their lobbyists speak up. So it's kind of a myth, I believe, that the pharmaceutical industry, the private person industry, the alcohol industry is involved in trying to keep it Schedule 1, trying to keep it illegal. Mm. I think more so it's just that we have demonized it so well that so many people have ingrained in their minds that this is the way to solve the problem. Prohibition is the way to solve the problem. And they, they just haven't changed their minds. Right. How do you go about educating people to do that? Because I know, like... John Snowden and myself, we're all in the media industry, so we obviously we try to reach people that way. But what do you think is the best way to, to educate people and change their views? You know, the, the absolute best way is the same way I educated recently the publisher of a major magazine here in, uh, in the Phoenix Valley. You take them to see the reality. You know, I don't ever want to change somebody's view upon, you know, how does caffeine affect you and your family and your friends? How does tobacco affect you and your family and your friends? How does alcohol affect you and your family and friends? How does marijuana affect you and your family and friends? But people's minds about that are so ingrained in their experience is so real, whether it's in high school in America or anywhere else. Let them believe and experience what they want to experience. But again, it's about how we manage the problem or not the problem. Mm -hmm. You need to come into these dispensaries, come into these cultivations, come see what it's like to have people working in a safe environment, growing it, selling it, distributing it, not going to jail, they're paying taxes, you know, they're they're not they're not drug dealers, they're not sending the money to Mexico, they're buying houses here in Arizona. So when you see firsthand that the economic model shifted from gangbangers and Mexican cartels to American business people, you know that that you see and you know. So the best way is to actually show them that it's a better model. I don't think and this is where I come into like as a middle ground kind of mainstream advocate. I don't think you're ever going to change people's opinion about, about how caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana affect them. 
what you want to do is change the way that the policy manages the problem or not problem. And that, that's where I will always be at. I'm never going to be one of these people that sits there and says, hey, you know what, Nate? You and I go smoke a joint, you'll be a better person. You know, you and I go drink a beer, you'll be a better person. I'm never going to say that. And I'm never going to say that beer or caffeine or tobacco doesn't affect you negatively because I don't know how it affects you. It might affect you positively. It might affect you negatively. For me, tobacco is horrible. It really caused my dad heart disease. It's, it's, it's the real enemy, but that's just for me. You know, so I'm not going to try to change that. And that's why a lot of like activists nationwide, they're like, Dimitri, we, want, we don't want to hear from you because you have negative things to say about marijuana. It's not that I have negative things to say about marijuana or positive things to say about marijuana. I just want to say the truth. Right. And, and again, I, what I always hear from Dimitri is, you know, that it's, you know, telling the truth, start out with the truth, you know, uh, as a line that I've heard him and say quite a bit. And I think that's important. I've been uh, a member at the same country club, Arrowhead Country Club for nine years uh, here in Arizona, I live in Arrowhead uh, Ranch, one of the most conservative, politically conservative neighborhoods uh, in the state of Arizona. I have hundreds of friends in my community. I've been there for nearly a decade. And uh, they all know that I work in the cannabis industry. Uh, I talk about it with uh, my partner, with our kids. Uh, we talk about it with our friends and families so that they understand what I do and what business and industry that I'm in. And I've found it has impacted me in no real substantive way. Uh, people are very accepting of that and, and understand that this is the business that I'm in and this is the business that is a business that's coming to Arizona. Now, I do talk about it quite often and its positive impact on our economy, that it's bringing dollars to the bottom line. Again, that there are real opportunities uh, in this industry and commonly have conversation with these folks about investment opportunities that exist uh, in our industry. In fact, just recently, good friends over at the Phoenix Business Journal uh, asked me to help them host a debate regarding this issue. So on September 29th, the business community of Arizona, the top echelon of those uh, businesses that exist in our economy here, are going to gather and listen to a debate about this initiative uh, specifically. And uh, I think that's where this conversation has to exist for our industry to uh, continue to excel in a rapid uh, growth phase that it's in now is going to need the best of the best financial institutions to be involved with their businesses, to bring good capital into our industry uh, so that we can finance these projects appropriately, to have great lawyers that really know how to create good mergers and acquisitions and accountants and other financial services that are currently either inaccessible or those professional services are uneducated about the regulatory environment that we exist in. So all of those things have to come along and come on board. So there is a very heavy lift uh, over the next five years. This industry will grow from a $6 billion a year industry to a 30 or $40 billion industry over the next five years. So there's a huge lift that has to be done to educate the masses, particularly those professional services, on how to be of service to this industry. Mm. You know, you, you kept saying rapidly grow. I think what we really need and, and what, what we are doing is we're rapidly replacing. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're not growing. We're not creating a new industry. We're just replacing an old one. The cartels and the gangbangers and the drug dealers and the street-level dealers, that's the old marijuana industry. I, I don't think, personally, I really want to see the growth of alcohol, tobacco, or, or, or marijuana, personally, myself. That's just me. That's the way I see things. But certainly, we should take the marijuana trade as it exists and replace it 
with traditional business. Guess who wins in those cases? Mm-hmm. The taxpayers win. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the economy wins. The Americans win. And that's what we want. We want to shift it away from the illegal drug dealers back over, over here. And in that sense, it is, is growing. It's growing from zero you know, to 100 but it's taking that hundred from the cartels. It's not like the industry is pushing an See, entire new model that didn't exist before. Yeah, and it's always and been there. To look at two two sides of that paradigm, the cartels. I I I kind of see that as as its own animal, and then the legalization, um, the legal uh, commerce of marijuana and cannabis. You know, as these laws change as a, a completely separate, almost a separate industry, but the usage is like one entity, if you will. The population of people who already use, yeah. you know, from the cartels or whatever, but we're killing that, that shady business. Yeah. And, I mean, Where the criminal activity exists. We're talking about brutal, brutal people yeah. uh, who are doing things that none of us could even imagine uh, implementing in our daily lives. Well, Whereas Hearst. the folks that I get to work with in this industry are professional, uh, courteous, are creating real opportunities in their small local community uh, where they exist. And that, again, back to what Dimitri is saying, maybe it is replacing uh, an existing structure in the cartel, uh, but what it's doing is eliminating another revenue model for truly evil people. Right, and the, they're the, switching over. There's there's documented uh, data along the southern Arizona border here that they're switching over to heroin and meth and pushing more on human trafficking. And what they, are, I mean, as long as there's something that's illegal, they're going to figure out how. I mean, whether it's bubble gum, or it doesn't matter. They're just people who find uh, lazy routes to making money. And, it, it seems like such a waste of human resources, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really is putting their energy into that. Makes you think about solutions to some of those other problems too. Which problems? The the other ones you mentioned. Their new uh, revenue sources. Oh yeah, and you know, and, and that's interesting. And, and there has been, you know, I, I talked to a number of people in law enforcement. I talked to, you know, I did a little bit of defense work mm-hmm. defending drug dealers between prosecuting and government relations. Right. But I decided that it wasn't for me (laughs) just because I felt dirty about the whole thing because you spent 85% of the time collecting money from drug traffickers. Right. You know, or, or or guys who've committed DUIs and that, that's just not me. So um, I got a lot of information from them, made a lot of contact. So I talked to a lot of people in the state of Arizona and the, the, the trafficking level has just decreased tremendously of marijuana from the border up into Arizona yeah. uh, over the last six years. And guess what? We have a $200 million medical marijuana per, uh, industry in Arizona taxed and regulated. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the actual tax dollars on it, but it must be like 40, 50 million dollars, 42 million. And, and to, to Nate's point just a second ago about, you know, addressing the, the other problems, the heroin, the meth, the, the, these very addictive uh, drugs, when you can, when when our law enforcement can shift their attention from a widely used substance in marijuana, uh, because it's now a legal, taxed, and regulated uh, commercial product in the United States, and focus their attention on these very dangerous drugs mm-hmm. uh, in heroin and, and meth, the two most dangerous that we hear about all the time on the news, 
then I think we found part of our solution. We found an opportunity to allow law enforcement to focus where real problems exist. Mm-hmm. Um, crime around marijuana happened because it was illegal. Once it becomes legal, very little criminal activity will result from it. Right. Right. It makes me think a lot about the prohibition model because um, I still don't necessarily know whether or not heroin and and meth. I mean, I'm, I'm such a come from such a strong law enforcement background. That, that's what I'm used to, um, and I don't know if eliminating the prohibition model for heroin and meth would necessarily be a good thing. I'm not there yet, but I am there, and I have seen firsthand all over Arizona commercial buildings being leased, uh, spaces being used for dispensaries for cultivations for infuses, people being employed, tax dollars being paid, yeah. houses being bought, cars being bought, the economic the, the economic engine, economic activity that's turning around Arizona, two hundred million dollars worth. And then there's some like economic multiplier type thing that I'm not even quite sure about how that works. So it's much greater that it's here, staying here, it's it, it's benefiting the people of Arizona rather than being shipped off to other countries. So I, I actually know that that works. And suddenly people aren't suddenly smoking marijuana. Right. You know, there's, it's not like we're going back to the 60s and you have a bunch of hippies running around or whatever other pe- thing people are afraid of, you know, the Venice Beach style thing where there's dispensaries everywhere. Yeah. Along those lines, that's where politicians should be at. They should be at looking at intelligent regulations, looking at regulations that implant protect employer rights, protect landlord rights, property owners' rights, um, protect the rights of local jurisdictions to develop codes and ordinances that reflect the community that they want to live in. Politicians need to look at these things. Like, for example, bars bars in any town, they're regulated. They can be certain distances. They're subject to noise ordinances and stuff. What about marijuana social clubs? You know, those things need to be regulated. And politicians right. need to have intelligent, thoughtful looks at these situations and think through marijuana policy rather than just letting it just kind of happen, you know, grassroots style, you know, be yeah. much, much more productive. Because the people are, are, are wising up. The people are getting good information and they want a better model than prohibition. They want tax and regulate. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more on that one. And ultimately, it's going to protect their constituents, too, if they really start looking at it yeah. but um gosh and and the regulation of of other uh the heroin and the meth and that sort of thing i i'm kind of with you i totally agree with the marijuana side of the equation but when you look at the harder drugs like that i i really am starting to believe that you know ending a prohibition model on those would actually help to save lives because so many people who are addicted to opioids uh pharmaceuticals the legal ones which you know, so closely resemble heroin, when they get cut off now that they're restricting that, they're turning to heroin. So I think there are a lot of, a lot of um, issues that can be solved. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and at the end of the day, there were more deaths related to uh, prescription drug use last year than any year before that in the mm-hmm. United States. And it's a continuing problem and one that we have to address And one way to address that is by legalizing, taxing, and regulating marijuana. And that's why we're excited that it's on the ballot. We certainly hope that all of the uh, voters take a look at that, become educated on the issue, far beyond just the propaganda, and uh, and vote their conscience on that issue. And beyond Arizona. I mean, it's California, Arkansas, Nevada. Um, 
what nine nine states we we've counted and i am a speak for law enforcement against prohibition leap it's a national organization yes. and anybody can we'll be interviewing someone from finn www.mita-az.org anybody okay. can get a hold of us and you know that that that's our local arizona trade industry group but you know right. we can answer any questions and help educate whoever yeah well we'll continue this conversation and um john and dimitri thank you thank you thank you so so much for um this discussion today i think it's just so important and the more we open the dialogue, I think the better it will be for voters who have to make a, a pretty good choice coming up here pretty soon. So um, thank you once again to both of you for joining us today. Also, um, many thanks to Nate Nichols for your Marijuana Minute. I really appreciate you being here and being part of the conversation and thanks, representing all the young voices out there, <laughs> in addition to everything else that you do with us. <laughs> Anyway, please visit us at thecannabisreporter.com to learn about this topic and uh, the work that our guests are doing and more about today's show. Um, while there, you can also download a, a podcast of the show. Um, I'd like to thank Wendy West, our amazing producer, and all of the team at Star Worldwide Networks. And, of course, Eric Goodall, who wrote our theme song, Evergreen. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop. Uh, please tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of The Cannabis Reporter. And until then, I hope you make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.